Well, good morning, church family. So glad you're here with us uh, in the building or online. It's wonderful to gather together as God's family, and we continue to pray and uh, trust that God will bring an end to this pandemic and continue to uh, give us the fullness of what He wants for us as a church family. Well, I have a story to share with you to start this morning, and it's a story you may have heard before. It's about a story named Kimo and Kalani. After a long day's work, Kimo had no idea that his heart was about to be broken again. When he opened the door to his home, his heart sank in his chest. It was a scene he had seen before. His son Jesse and his daughters Lokalani and Leigh sitting at the dinner table with no meal on the table. His wife Kalani, gone, nowhere in sight. The pain in his children's eyes told the story. He tried to be cheerful as he said, Hey kids, are you hungry? But he couldn't avoid Jesse's question. Where's mom? I thought she was going to stay with us. Kimo had learned not to lie to his children. I don't know where mom is. Come on, let's make supper together. He felt as though he had been physically kicked in the gut as he thought about Kalani again, abandoning her family to have an affair. Tears welled up in his eyes as he thought about the woman he loved having a candlelight dinner with another man, going home with him. But for the kid's sake, he had to be strong. He pushed thoughts of Kalani out of his mind and focused on asking the kids about their day and making supper. After dinner, Kimo read stories to his children, prayed with them, kissed them on the cheek, and tucked them into bed. He sat in the family room on his soft leather recliner. In the emptiness of the room, thoughts of Kalani flooded his mind. She had been his high school sweetheart, the only woman he had ever kissed, the only woman he had ever loved. He cherished their memories together. The sparkle in her eye, the joy of her laughter, the softness of her touch, the warmth of her presence as they woke up together in the morning light. Tears rolled down his cheeks as his heart was filled with his love for Kalani. His body began to ache as he longed for her to be with him. As much as he didn't want to go there, he couldn't help but start wondering where Kalani was. Who was she with this time? How did they meet? What was she attracted to? Why was she attracted to him? What were they doing? Kimo's fists began to clench. He felt his stomach tighten and twist into a knot. Anger rose up in his heart as he thought of the number of times Kalani had betrayed him. How many times she had violated her wedding vows. How many times she had given herself to another man. It had gone on for years. And though he hated to face the truth of the matter, Kimo knew it deep inside. The very precious children he was raising, he couldn't even be sure that he was their father. That was too painful to dwell on. Yet every time his wife had cheated on him, Kimo had shown her compassion. He had forgiven her. He had taken her back into his home. He had taken her back into his heart because Kalani was the love of his life. 
Each time he had hoped that she would come to her senses, that she would realize the emptiness of her unfaithfulness and come to appreciate the depth of his love for her. But she had only treated him like trash. She had continually despised his loyalty and his love. She had repeatedly trampled on his heart. A deep sadness filled Kimo's mind as he realized it was over. He knew it. Even if he could find it in his heart to forgive her one more time, it would only be a matter of time before she would run off again. He could no longer bear the pain. He was done. The sad truth was he had married an unfaithful woman. He had hoped and dreamed of so much more in life, but the woman he loved turned out to be an adulteress. As this reality sunk in, Chemo instinctively cried out to God, Why, O oh Lord, why couldn't I have fallen in love with a woman who would be faithful to me? Why did I have to marry a woman who would hurt me so much? At the very moment he finished crying out, Chemo heard an unmistakable voice. It was soft, but it was clear. Go after her one more time, Chemo. Show compassion for her one more time. Forgive her. Though she hurts you beyond words, love her with an unfailing love. Just as I love my people. Well, I don't know if you recognize the story, but it's actually the story of the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer. We just changed their names to Hawaiian names. But it's a story that's found in your Bible in the Old Testament. It's the story of Hosea. In one sense, it's a very tragic story. But in another sense, it is an amazing story. Because it's the story of the depth and the power of God's love for his people. It's the story of the depth and the power of God's love for you. And that makes it the greatest love story in all of ever in history. Ever been written is the story of, of Hosea revealing the heart of God's love for you. Now Hosea was a prophet who lived in the 8th century before Christ. And he lived in northern, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. In his day, the kingdom had been split after Solomon to Israel in the north and um, Judah in the south. And he lived in the north and he was a called prophet of God to speak to God's people. The historical situation was that the God of the universe had entered into a loving relationship with Israel. If you want to follow along with the notes, God's relationship with Israel was a covenant. Now that's not a word that we use very often. But we've uh, mentioned it before that a covenant had two pillars. A covenant was built of two pillars. One was commitment, loyalty, pledge, vows. The other was intimacy, closeness, relationship. Those two things were essential to a covenant. That's why marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a commitment with love. You can have one pillar of, of uh, that. You can have commitment, but it's no covenant. That makes it a contract. For example, I have a, I have a mortgage with my bank. 
and I have a pure commitment every month. I faithfully pay that money. It's a contract, and it has commitment. But there's no relationship. I don't even know the name of my banker. On the other hand, you can have intimacy, you can have closeness, you can have relationship, but no commitment. We, have, we call it cohabitation. We call it living together, where a couple will share intimacy and closeness and relationship, but they've never made a commitment before God and before witnesses and to each other until death do us part, as long as we both shall live. There's no commitment, but there's a, that's not a covenant. Marriage consists of both of those. This is the relationship God had with Israel. Commitment and affection. Loyalty and love. The problem in Hosea's day was that God was faithful to his relationship. He had chosen and set his heart upon the nation. He had chosen Abraham and decided to build a family relationship with Abraham on earth and through Abraham and his family to bring his love and his blessing to all the nations of the earth. He had chosen Israel as a nation and entered into a covenant with them, a loving, committed relationship. He'd drawn them and rescued them out of Egyptian slavery and drawn them to his heart and made them his chosen nation and his love and set his heart upon them, and he was faithful to the covenant. The problem was Israel was unfaithful. And in Hosea's day, Israel was in a condition of spiritual adultery. That was their sin. Israel's core sin was spiritual adultery. Listen to what the text says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They commit adultery. How? By giving themselves to other gods. Israel was spiritually unfaithful to, to the Lord who had set his heart, upon a love, his heart of love upon them, who had entered into a covenant relationship with them, and he was faithful, but they were unfaithful. Now, God loves with a jealous love, not an insecure love, but when he sets his heart on love on, on a nation, on a people, on you and on me, he loves us in a way that requires exclusivity back. A jealous love. That's a healthy, that's a good thing. Most of us that are married, or even those of us that are single, think about getting married. What happens? When you get married, when you enter into a covenant, Martha made a commitment to me. She said, Rick, you're going to be the only man in my life. Um, her dating days were over. Her um, pursuit of relationships with other men not tolerated. Now it was an exclusive love for each other. And God loved Israel with a jealous love. It wasn't okay for them to seek other partners, to seek other gods, because he had set his heart upon love upon them and he had called them to love him in this covenant relationship. Israel had failed at that and their, their spiritual adultery was manifest in a number of ways. Let's just cover them quickly. Look at some verses. Their, their, their core sin of spiritual unfaithfulness to the Lord expressed itself in, for one thing, idol worship. The people who live in Samaria, chapter 10 and verse 5, fear the calf idol, calf idol of Beth Aven. They, they worship a calf idol. And interestingly enough, Bethel means the house of the Lord, but Hosea says you're going up to Beth Aven, which is the house of wickedness. And what they were doing in turning away from the Lord and worshiping idols 
was wicked. It was sinful. It was wrong. And he says this in uh, chapter 11 and verse 2. They sacrificed to Baals. Well, Baal or Baal were the Canaanite fertility gods. They went chasing after the way everybody else was living in the land, all the pagan peoples. And uh, that was depraved and it was corrupt. And they've worshipped idols. They worshipped false gods rather than the living God who had revealed himself and drawn them into a covenant relationship with himself. It was also expressed in detestable practices. As they went up to these other worship centers, they engaged in the depraved, immoral, uh, pagan religion of the day, which involved temple prostitutes. And they, they would go up and practice sympathetic magic. They would, they would have sex with a temple prostitute with the idea of that act of, of uh, fertility would, would try and induce the fertility of Baal and Anat in the land. And so the and land was depraved be- and it was immoral. And it was detestable to God. They even, we read in 1 Kings, practiced child sacrifice to try and induce the gods for prosperity. They would actually take the lives of their own children. And so it says in uh, chapter 10, 9 and verse 10, it says, They came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. They became as detestable as that which they loved. They went and loved other gods. And that involved detestable practices. For men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. It was depraved. It was detestable in the Lord's sight. It was immoral. And when I stop and think about Israel practicing child sacrifice, I can't help but think that our culture, our country, legally practices child sacrifice. It's called abortion. And it's a detestable thing in God's sight because he's the author of life and he gives life and yet it is legal in our country to destroy life in the womb. If I didn't need a reminder of that this week, uh, guess what happened? God blessed our family. The, uh, the entrance on Wednesday night of a new life into Steve and Julin's life, God gave them a baby daughter and I want to show you a picture of her because I'm a proud grandpa. There is just arrived from God Wednesday night uh, her name is Lucy Hope Zinai, which in Ch- that's her Chinese middle name, which means uh, uh, faith and love. So she's hope, faith, and love. And she's a doll, and she's beautiful, and she's God's gift. And um, God is the author of life, and he loves life. And yet, guess what? Every day there's a detestable practice in our country where lives are destroyed in the womb. And I look at that precious little girl, and I think, how many precious lives are destroyed And how detestable is that in God's sight? God hates racial injustice, and he hates economic injustice, but he hates life injustice as well. And we should never accept this as a a legitimate practice in our culture, whether it's legal or not. And we need to vote for people that that stand for God's values, whether on race or economics or life. Um, That's part of being salt and life. But there's just uh, one of the detestable things. When Israel turned their heart away from the Lord to the gods of the land, it ended up in detestable practices. A fourth thing is violent crime. And talk about the newscasts of our nation. It says, there is only cursing, Hosea 4 and verse 2. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds, lawlessness. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. It was built into God's covenant with Israel that they were to love God and love people. And when they turned away from their hearts from God, it ended up in all sorts of social upheaval and crime and violence. Just in Hosea's day, 
25 years, they had six kings, if you read the history. Of those six kings, four were actually murdered by their successor. Their successor came in and, and murdered the king. So when he talked about bloodshed after bloodshed, this was not a figure of speech. This was going on in his culture. They turned from God and there was violence and crime and bloodshed. This was all a reflection of their core sin of going after other gods, of idolatry. Self-centered pride was another manifestation or expression of their, their spiritual unfaithfulness. God, Hosea says this in chapter 13 and verse 6. When I fed them, says God, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. They thought it was their achievements. They thought it was their accomplishments. They thought they had made their own prosperity. And their hearts were filled with pride. Then they forgot me. They forgot the giver when they were satisfied with the gifts. And they turned their hearts from God. And that leads to the final one, spiritual ingratitude. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain. God is the source of all prosperity. The crops, the fertility, the land, the blessing. And uh, when people turn to false gods and when they turn their heart away from the living God, there's a sense of spiritual ingratitude there to the true source of blessing. All of these were just expressions of a nation that had gone astray, a nation that had turned their hearts to false gods, a nation that were spiritually unfaithful to the Lord. And into that, that country and into that time, God called a prophet, Hosea. And he placed a calling on Hosea's prophet that quite frankly, most of us, all of us are, are glad didn't put on our life. But he said, to Hosea, this was his calling on Hosea's life in that culture, among the spiritual unfaithfulness of the day, his calling was simply this, to love an unfaithful wife, to live out in his marriage the spiritual dimension of what was happening in God's covenant relationship with Israel. So we read in Hosea chapter 2 and verse, or in uh, Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2, the Lord said to Hosea, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea, go and live out in your own marriage, in your family, this spiritual dynamic. Why? Well, in a moment we'll see. The Lord said to me, Hosea, go show your love. This is Hosea in chapter 3 and verse 1. Go show your love to your wife again. This was not just a one-time failure. Go and show your love to your wife. Again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. What's going on here? God had a message for Israel. He wanted to communicate through his prophet. And his message we could just summarize this way, as I put in your notes. This is God's message to Israel. And his message to us, your sin breaks my law, but more than that, your sin breaks my heart. Your sin breaks my law, but more than that, your sin breaks my heart. Because God says, in essence, I am the lawgiver, but more than that, I'm the lover. I'm the lover. And when you commit sin, when you turn your heart away from me, when you go after the false gods of the land, it hurts my heart. And a marriage relationship, whether we're married or whether we're single, 
I hope you can understand the heart of God reaching out to say this to us. Because again, when I look at Martha and my relationship, when we stood and made covenant vows to each other and entered into that relationship, we made rules, if you will. We made laws. I would always be faithful till death do us part. And she will be the only woman in my life. And she made the same covenant commitment to me. Commitment and affection and intimacy and love. If I were to, God forbid, if I were to go out, go out and, and, and pursue another woman and have an adulterous affair with another woman, I would have broken my vows. I would have broken the vow I made to God. I would have broken the rules. I would have broken the vow I made to Martha that other people witnessed. But so much more than breaking the vows, I would break Martha's heart because she has set her love on me. And that's the message that God is saying through Isaiah to you and me. And even as tragic as the, the story of Hosea and Gomer is, behind that, by the way, is God's greatest love story. And we'll get there in a moment. But for a moment, let me just see if I can make this personal to you this morning and this week. Because you might be thinking in your mind, you know what, Israel, I mean, how stupid can you be? Worship calf idols, they've seen the living God show up in history and, and go after the Canaanite gods of the land and all this immorality. I mean, I would never do that. I'm not living there. But don't make the mistake of thinking that idol worship can't happen in your heart and my heart. Because you know what idol worship is? Idol worship is the battle for the first place in your heart. That's what it is. It's the battle for the affection and the love of your heart. What happens today is idol worship is rampant in our culture. It's rampant in our community. And it can draw your heart into idol worship as well. Just as it did Israel's heart. You can worship the gods of the land. It's just that the gods are more sophisticated today. Nobody believes that calves are gods or, no, or fertility cults. Nobody in Kailua does that. But guess what some of the idols are? Some of the idols are things like pleasure. Pleasure can be an idol. When you place pleasure at a place in your heart that only belongs to God, and there's nothing wrong with a good movie or, or a good meal or, or uh, you know, some, some healthy entertainment or some healthy recreation. But what happens is when people make pleasure that which motivates them, that which drives them, that which moves them during the week, that's what they most look forward to, then they've given pleasure a place in their heart that only belongs to God, and they've made that an idol. Anytime you take a good thing and raise it up to a God thing, then you're committing idolatry. And it can happen with pleasure. Uh, I, don't, I, I remember one time years ago uh, where I was so excited about a particular football team that I found myself... Looking as a pastor, the most exciting thing on the weekend was going to be that that was member UH's undefeated season. It was a lot of years ago, but I was so excited about and I had season tickets, and that was the most. And then I realized, why am I not as excited about preaching and going to church on Sunday morning? Am I giving to God a piece of my heart? Am I, am I giving to the UH football team and making it an idol, giving it a place that only belongs to God? It's very easy to slip into that surfing. A good thing, but does it become a love of your life that's only worthy of God? Pleasure can be one. Food, uh, a good meal is a good thing, but we can find ourselves 
living to eat rather than eating to live. And food can take a place. And one of the questions, one of the ways you can determine an idol in your life is say, where do you turn to for comfort and for peace? When you are stressed, when you are anxious, when you're under pressure, where do you turn? Do you turn to God? Or do you turn to food? Or do you turn to entertainment? You know, I'm just going to binge on Netflix. That may be a sign of an idol creeping up in your heart. It's rampant. And God is worthy of your first affection and your first love. So pleasure can be an idol. We all know money can be an idol. When you find yourself thinking about money, trying to figure out ways to make more money, save more money, everything in your life is, is wrapped around money, spend more money, you, you know, stress, so I'm going to spend money because that makes me feel better, then, then money can be creeping up to be an idol, to have a place in your heart that's not worthy. It becomes a false god, an idol. Success in your career, achievement, when you were just driven. And these are all good things. These are not evil things themselves. But when they rise up and take a place where only God should have in our life, when you find yourself motivated and thinking and going to sleep at night about how do you get that next promotion and waking up in the morning and then all you're thinking about is, is your career. And that's what's driving you and that's, what's, and that's your first love in life then you've just risen career up. It's very subtle, but it can happen in any of our lives. Or how about this one? Again, <laughs> wonderful things. Children, grandchildren, beautiful gifts from God. But when we find ourselves devoting our lives around even our children, our grandchildren, giving them a place that only belongs to God, then we are allowing them to become idols in our life. So these are just some of the examples. It's very subtle, but it's very easy for us to do what Israel did and to have our hearts drawn away into idol worship in its various forms. The wonderful news is that for all of us, and I believe all of us, if we're honest, will struggle and with idol worship, with, with chasing after false gods in one way or another. And sometimes just giving lip service to Jesus as our God, but we've got all these other gods in our life. Multiple gods, polytheism, which is kind of what the other cultures did. And God said to Israel, no, I do not tolerate other partners in your life, other lovers in your life. I want to be the one true love in your life, just as I have put my heart of love upon you. The wonderful news about Hosea's message is this, and if there's anything you catch this morning, don't miss this. This is the world's greatest love story. God loves you with an unfailing love. God loves you with a perfect love, with a forgiving love, with a restoring love, with a committed love, with a love that will never let you go. That's Hosea's message to Israel. Listen to what he says in chapter 11 and verse 8. How can I give, up to you? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. My, all my compassions are kindled. Did you catch that? He's saying, despite all of your unfaithfulness, despite all of your persistent rejection of my love, despite all of this continual adultery as you go after other gods, I can't give you up. My heart is kindled for you. I have a burning desire to love you, and I will never let you go. Why? Because I love you with an unfailing love. That's the greatest love story in all of history. And he says this in chapter 2 and verse 18. 
He says, in that day, I will make a covenant for them, a new covenant. I will betroth you to me forever, an eternal relationship. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, in compassion. This is God's heart. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. You unfaithful people, I'm going to make a wedding of faithfulness. Then you will know Yahweh. Then you will know the Lord. He says to Israel, despite your spiritual adultery, I have an unfailing love for you. Now you say that's a wonderful message for Israel. It's God's heart. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's his heart of love for you and me today. Look at some of the New Testament references. Here's a great one. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that says God loves you and me with an unfailing love, a perfect love, a love that will never let us go. He says this, but God shows his, his great love, his perfect love, his unfailing love in this way. Catch this. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Now think about that. While we were still sinners, before you even thought and had any love for God, before you accepted Christ and you were breaking his laws and breaking his heart and far from him, couldn't care less about him, not even thinking about him, in that condition, God looked at you and he said, he looked at me, he said, well, when Rick gets his act together, then I'll show him his love. No, he didn't because it's not based on performance. While I was a sinner, while I was breaking his laws and breaking his heart and far from him, he initiated the greatest act of love for me in all of eternity. He sent Christ to the world, and Christ said, I'm going to die for all of Rick's sins because I love him. I'm going to die for his unfaithfulness. I'm going to die for all of the laws he broke. I'm going to die for the idols he's worshipped. I'm going to die for all of his sins because... I have an unfailing love for him. It's not based on his performance. And can I say this? All of us, when we came to Christ, were unpure brides. None of us were pure, and God says, oh, that's the bride I want. All of us needed, had been defiled by, by breaking his laws, by breaking his hearts, and yet God set his unfailing love upon you and upon me. And he gave, Jesus gave his life on the cross out of that kind of love. It's called grace. And so Paul says this, you're saved by grace through faith apart from any works. It's not based on your performance. Israel's performance was terrible. Our performance, I hope, will be better than Israel's. But it's not based on our performance. It's not based on your faithfulness. It's based on his grace. Undeserved favor. And um, God says, your heart, Rick, may wander. Your heart may go after another God, but I will never let you go because my love for you is unfailing. You might fail. You may, may make a poor decision, but I will never fail because I am pure, perfect love. God is love. You know, I had a little human experience of this years ago um, when, when Martha and I, in the first year of our marriage, God blessed us with baby Stephen. Baby Stephen came along in our first year of marriage, and nobody had ever told me about postpartum depression. 
Ever since I've worked with young couples since that day, I tell them, hey, have you ever heard of postpartum depression? Because I, I learned it the hard way. I'd never heard about it, but here's what happened. God gave us this beautiful little baby. We brought Stephen home. We were in Dallas. We were living in a little apartment. I was first-year seminary student. I was preparing myself to serve God as a pastor. Had this beautiful little baby and came home, and guess what? Martha, who, who had loved me and had married me, she didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I didn't understand what happens with postpartum depression is she'd given birth to this baby and her, and her hormones had had this big pendulum shift and she went temporarily insane. I mean, she was nuts. I mean, she just wasn't her regular self. I didn't understand that. All I knew was we came back to our apartment with our little baby. She didn't want me in the room. She didn't want me in the apartment. She didn't want me near the baby. She wanted me out of her life. And I remember thinking, God, You've, my life is ruined. Who wants to hire a pastor whose wife just left with the baby? And she said some really terrible things to me. She hurt my feelings. And I, I thought, what did I do to deserve this? I had no idea that she was, in some ways, just, I don't want to overstate it, but she was not herself. She, this, it hit her really hard, this postpartum depression thing. But here's what happened at the time, because I remember thinking, you know what? Though she spit in my face, and she never came close to that, but I remember thinking, though she spit in my face, I'm not leaving. I'm going to take a stand for love. I'm going to be patient with her. I'm going to be kind with her. Even though I don't feel I deserve the way I'm being treated, I'm going to love her. And I said to her, you know what? I understand you don't want me in the room. I'll sleep on the couch, but I'm not leaving our family. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on us. And I'm, I'm trusting that God's going to take us through this. And I didn't understand what she was going through, but I knew one thing. There was going to be love in my heart towards her, despite her performance. And that was just a little glimpse of how God treats you and me. Because our performance at times, for whatever reason, without excusing it, can be wrong, it can be bad, and it can be hurtful to God. We can fail him, but he will never fail us. Because that's who he is. That's his heart of love, and he doesn't change. You want one other verse that shows his unfailing love to us? It's in the, I love this verse, 2 Timothy 2, 13. If we are unfaithful, and he's talking about we Christians who are following him, but we can choose to make unfaithful decisions. When you belong to God, when you, he, you've accepted his love and put your faith in Christ, and you're part of his family, and you're part of his covenant, you can still make unfaithful decisions. He says, if we are unfaithful, what? He'll give up on you. No, he'll never let you go. It says he remains faithful since he cannot deny himself. That's who he is. He's pure love. He's perfect love. He's unfailing love. He's committed love. He will never let you go. It's not based on your performance. So how do you respond to a God like that? How do you love a God who loves you with an unfailing love? Well, obviously you love him faithfully. And I want us to close this morning by thinking about you this week and me this week, how we practically respond. And in terms of your notes, this would be beyond my encouragement to turn your heart towards God's unfailing love. To continually turn your heart to God's unfailing love. That's what Hosea did. He says, come, let us return to Yahweh. Let us return to the Lord in all of our spiritual unfaithfulness. But he's not going to let you go because he loves you with a faithful love. He says this, so let us know, let us press on 
to know, and it's looking at a relationship, the Lord. Let's know who He really is. Let's recognize His love despite your failure. Jesus puts it this way for us, very clear. Just love God with all you've got. How do you respond to a God who loves you with an unfailing love, who saw you in your need, who saw you in your sin, saw you breaking his heart and still set his heart of love upon you to forgive everything, to draw you as his son, as his daughter forever? How do you love a God like that? You love him faithfully. You turn to him in every situation. And when you slip and when you, for whatever reason, allow an idol to creep up in your heart and, and take a place where it should never be, you turn from that and you turn back to the God who loves you with an unfailing love. So let me be very practical for uh, some of us this morning, this week. For some of us, what it means to love God with all we've got and to turn our hearts towards his unfailing love towards us this week. Some of us, it means making a decision and obeying that decision. Because loving God with your heart, your heart is the, the source of your decision-making and your affections. And maybe God has called you to do something and you just need to obey him and do it. You need to make a decision to do it. Maybe it's to be kind to your wife. Maybe it's to pray with your need to respond to the Spirit and just help that person. What is it that God has called you to do that you just need to say, okay, I need to do it. And I need to love God by making a decision to do it. Maybe it's loving him with your affections, with your soul, with your heart, with your inner being. Maybe it's as simple as actually singing during the worship time rather than just watching the worship team. Whether you're online or whether you're here, you know, very easy, just, wow, musical people, great song, but you're not entering into singing your adoration and your love for God, and maybe it's as simple as expressing your affection to him. Maybe it's as simple as, as turning on some worship music during the week and um, filling your car or filling your home with praise that goes up to God and letting your heart tune in with that and, and letting the God who loves you with an unfailing love know that you love him too and you deeply appreciate all that he's done for you in Christ and all he's done for you in life and all that he's doing for you right now. Just turn your heart towards him and give him the first place of your affections. Maybe it's loving him with your mind and realizing I need to watch less Netflix and, and, and turn off, um, you know, not so play so many games on those devices all day, uh, computer or, or uh, whatever, phone or, or um, iPad, and, and, and actually read the scriptures and think about them and meditate upon them and, and let God speak to you through them and about who he is and, and how much he loves you and, and love him with your mind or read a good book that's all about God that has the teaching of the Holy Spirit through a human author that will build you up in your faith. Love him with your mind. Love him with your affections. Use your time to give him first place in your life. And yes, love him with your strength. <laughs> What does that mean? How do you love God with your strengths? How do you turn it? Well, it means for one thing, recognizing that he's your boss. Most of our effort in life, most of our strength, most of our energy goes into our work. We need to do our work as unto the Lord. We need to realize that Jesus is our boss. Whether we have a good boss or an um, indifferent boss or a bad boss, that Jesus is our boss and we do our work unto him. And that's loving him with our strength. And by the way, yes, it means taking some of our income from working with our strength and giving that income, the first of our income to the Lord 
as an expression of our gratitude and our love and our recognition that he is the Lord, that he creates prosperity, that he's given me gifts, that he's given me opportunities, that he's given me education, that he's given me a family that taught me a, a work ethic, that all of these good things came from him. And he's the source of all prosperity and not be built up with pride or sense of independence or forgetting God and we're enjoying the gifts but losing sight of the giver. All of that's idol worship. So in all of these ways and others, my question to you, dear family this morning, dear brother and sister in the Lord is, how are you going to love God this week? The love, the, the God who loves you with an unfailing love, a perfect love, a love that will never let you go because he is faithful, because he is true, because he is pure love. How do you love a God like that? You love him with all you got. And you turn your hearts from wherever they may be bent. And we're all prone to wander. And we say, this week, with whatever I've been going through, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make Jesus the love of my life this week. Can we do that? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for the way that it's displayed in Jesus on the cross. And Lord, we know that that same love flows to us every day. An unfailing love. A forgiving love. A restoring love a building love, a committed love, a love that will never let us go even though we may neglect you, even though we may turn from you because you are pure and faithful love. We, we worship you for who you are and Lord, we ask that by your spirit you would prompt us this week to love you in a manner worthy of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.